this idea of being born in the wrong body to me just has such a tinge of shame to it. Like it's just, it feels like such a shameful self conception. And I, I just couldn't ever believe that about myself. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, a conversation with Thomas McBee about masculinity from the point of view of a trans man. And there are, of course, moments where I felt and still feel like I catch myself in the mirror and I'm just like, that's awesome. Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor. When traveling, there's almost nothing worse than waking up in a hotel where the only thing available to eat is from a vending machine. Trust me, I know this firsthand. That's why I love to stay at AC Hotels by Marriott. The AC Kitchen offers European-inspired sweet and savory egg tarts, freshly sliced prosciutto, and signature croissant flown in fresh from France. This space is flexible, offering a communal area to collaborate, relax, and start my day. AC Hotels lets you live life by design, not by default. AC Hotels, member of Marriott Bonvoy, the perfectly precise hotel. Visit AC Hotels at ac-hotels.com to learn more. Thomas Page McBee's first book was his memoir, Man Alive, which is his very personal answer to the question, what makes a man? The second book, a researched memoir called Amateur, is also about masculinity. It is about learning how to box and what boxing tells us about masculinity's connection to violence. McBee comes at the topic from the perspective of a transgender man, the first trans man to ever box in Madison Square Garden. He joins me today to talk about his life, his books, and his career. Thomas Page McBee, welcome to Design Matters. I'm very happy to be here. Now, Thomas, I understand you once got ensnared in a passionate debate with a group of women at a bar about the queer merits of the character Samantha (laughs) on Sex in the City. What was that about? I mean... It's like Samantha's the best character in Sex and the City, you know? I mean, is there even any debate about that? But, oh, you know, no. Of course. Not at all. Of course. Cynthia Nixon's character was well, the best. That's fair. That's a fair fight. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I was with my, my wife now, but she was my girlfriend at the time, and it was, like, one of the early times of meeting her friends. And so we were all hanging out, and, like, somehow Sex and the City came up, and I was just really engaged in a way I think that might have been a little unusual for a cis man. But I had a whole, like, backstory of having, you know, in, watched Sex in the City with my queer friends. Que- Sex in the City, I think, had a very important place in all queer culture, not just gay men. I think people don't realize that. And Well, I think it's just in all of culture. I think all gay of women. All culture, sure, yeah. I think straight people. I, I mean, but really, you thought that Samantha had... <laughs> The the best queer merits? I mean, I think Miranda did. I mean, she had that elevator scene where she kissed that little butch girl, which That's was adorable. True. But I guess Samantha just has that sort of queer panache or something. Like, I just, she was such a, I guess, like, pro-sex kind yeah, she of was open to woman. anything yeah. and everything. Yeah, and I just, like, I just, I loved her. She was my favorite. Um, see, I still hope that there's going to be a Sex in the City 3 and we see Miranda come out. Yeah. And then finally sort of embrace her queer identity. That which, would be wonderful. You know, we've always known that she's had. That's true. And then that would really knock, like, knock her up a couple notches for Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but I, I feel bad for Steve. It's too bad about Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas, you were born in North Carolina mm-hmm. and grew up in western Pennsylvania. Yep. Your mom was a physicist mm-hmm. and later an executive at GE. Your father worked in construction. You liked skateboarding and poetry. What kind of poetry were you reading back then? I was writing poetry. You were writing was, and reading. Yeah, yeah, since I was nine. I had. A, I was lucky to have a third grade teacher who really was on some sort of, she was on one about, about poetry. And so that was at a time in my life where I was really dealing with a lot of, like, uh, I had been experiencing trauma, child abuse. And so that was when I, that kind of surfaced. And I was lucky that... I had this teacher who basically was like, everyone here is going to write poetry. We're all going to spend pretty much a lot of every day doing this. And so, uh, and then the cool part about it was whoever wrote poems that she really liked, 
she would walk us down to the room where the fax machine was, because that's, you know, there wasn't computers, walk us down to where the fax machine was, and then if she really liked her poem, she would fax it to her daughter, who was supposedly a soap opera star in New York City. Wow. And that happened to me a few times, and it was I can still remember sitting on the bench like waiting for Mrs. Nichols to get send the facts through. It was amazing. So yeah, so I started writing poetry as a, as a child. Do you remember any of the poetry that you had written back then, or do you have any copies of anything? I have copies somewhere because my mom, you know, eventually compiled it into like kind of a book of sorts. I know I was very concerned about like social ills. I was like that kid, you know. Oh really? My <laughs> my, my first poem was, "I love my bed. My bed is red." <laughs> <laughs> in fourth grade to with Mr. Tornatori. Yeah. Was your bed red? <laughs> My room was red. Oh, okay. My room so you were taking red. some artistic license with I was. that. Yeah, I that's was. all right. I understand you also loved the classic Charles Dickens novel, Great Expectations, yeah. as a kid. See, I didn't learn to love that book until I was in college, but you saw yourself in Pip. Mm-hmm. How so? My mom read that book to me. It was sort of a like special thing where we would every night sit down and, and she would read this book. And she used to call me Pip. Um, How was, come? She never explained why, but I, I felt like we kind of had an understanding. Like there was something about the character where he was, I don't know, he's sort of on his own, but he also has this like kind of giant hope. And in the end, obviously, that doesn't work out so well for him. But but there was something in his optimism and his expansive, his sort of adventure, coming from kind of a shitty. Can I say shitty? Yeah. Oh yeah. You <laughs> coming can say from kind you of a, a shitty <laughs> circumstance, but then. Like, he doesn't stop loving or believing in love. I I don't know. I think there was something there that that she saw in me and I certainly connected to. That is my favorite Dickens book. It just destroyed me when I read it. It It's so sad. When I think about it. Yeah. You were born female, Mm -hmm. but you've written that you always saw yourself as a boy. And I know that you didn't have any singular epiphany and have instead described your transition as an unfolding coming into myself, mm-hmm. which I think is really beautiful. Mm, um, can can you elaborate on that a little bit? What do you mean by that? Mm. Oh, boy. What a question. Um, I mean, I think that's what my first book, Man Alive, was trying to sort of address. Like, I think that there's a way that we all have had transitions, you know? We've all had major transitions, whether it's, like, moving across the country and starting over or getting married or for other people like having a kid, I just feel like there are major things that change, not just your life, the trajectory of your life, but, you know, your entire sense of self. And so I don't think it's that different, actually. Like, I think being trans, obviously, there's something about, fundamental about my identity that was dissonant to my environment and my experience of myself and so on. Although even that, I'm like, is that that hard to understand, really? Like, I think we all have ways that we experience ourselves as different than the way other people see us, you know? And so I think with gender, it's just such a primary mediating part of who you are that when that that difference is not in alignment, it's so dramatic because it's like every part of your life that that dissonance is, is felt. So that's the sense of unfolding. But again, I think that's so human. I mean, isn't that literally everyone's story? Like for me, it's about gender, but I think I think it's also about how do I bring myself into sort of alignment as a person in general? Maybe unfolding is wrong. Maybe it's almost like an expansion or something. Or a... Yeah, I sort of feel in many ways that it's standing up for who you are mm-hmm. and claiming your identity. I don't know. Like, it's not like I had another choice. You mm. know, it's not like there's a separate identity I could have had that I, you know. That but you I... didn't have to stand up for who you are. No, but I probably would have died, yeah. you know. And I think there's something. And about... there are a lot of people that do. And there are a lot of people that do. And I think they do not. Not because it's so hard to be who you are, but because we live in a culture that, you know, doesn't allow for that kind of like, again, I think it's expansion. And I think with any identity thing, it's like you claim something and it's still a rough fit. You're like, yeah, I'm a man. Okay. But like for me, the more interesting thing for me wasn't like realizing that this was like where I needed to go. But it was like then once I was on this path, how do I actually make being a man be something I'm okay with being? Because I... Gender, I think, is kind of almost spiritual. There's something mystical about it, in my experience, anyway. And and I think for a lot of people, I think it gets flattened in culture, and I think it gets obviously politicized and weaponized. But for a long throughout history, trans people specifically have had very spiritual roles in culture, because I think we we are pointing out something that is ineffable and 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 kind of beautiful. But to actually 
be within it and to be within a gender in a way that actually feels authentic, given all the constructions about gender, it's really hard. Um, and I don't think that's specific to being trans. I think it's really hard to be any gender identity, really. I think it's hard to be authentic. authentic yes. Like, period. Like, yeah. just just being who you are without, a, without concerns about judgment mm-hmm. and shame and... Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's daunting. It's daunting. And also it's a process because you, you can't really be who you are without the feedback of everything around you. So it's more like how do I navigate all that feedback in a way that – what's my system <laughs> so I can keep coming back to myself? I think that's that's the work of being human. Absolutely. You described your childhood as – and this is a quote – chocolate milk, science fairs, camping – and the rituals that kept dad's hot breath distinct from the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Thomas, your father sexually abused you for many years. It began when you were four years old. Mm -hmm. You've described him as domineering, manipulative, double-crossing, and compulsive writing. What he did didn't hurt. It disconnected. It made two of me like there were two of him. It made me a stranger to myself. How did you manage through this without losing yourself altogether? I don't know. I think I think the repair of integration in general has been kind of a theme of my life and I it's not just been with 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 abuse, it's been through like my even now like my past and like how do I keep my past with me, you know, my past self with me, you know, even in this body and in this life. And I think maybe the way I've found to do it is by not abandoning myself further. Like the obvious solution, at least to me, you know, is dissociation, is pushing away, is trying to stay split to stay sane. And I think, first of all, I was lucky in that once the abuse was was voiced, like I, I was given resources and therapy and, you know, there was an acknowledgement that this even happened. And I know from a lot of people who've had this experience that doesn't happen. Yes. So, so that was really important that my mom believed me that I had a therapist, all of that. But it wasn't also so easy. I mean, it was complicated, and there was a lot about how it all was handled that 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 was messy. And um, I think having writing, you know, I mean, I think having, like, a way to tell my own story, even when I wasn't feeling like it was being told completely accurately by everyone else around me, I had a way. And I think a lot of my, like, commitment to telling my own story really got me through literally decades, I think, of There really my is life. something about the the saving potential of creativity. Yeah, I agree. So I think that's it, you know. You've written that because the sexual abuse that you experienced was discovered when you were 10, you came to understand that even as a kid, your childhood was purposefully destroyed. Mm. And I'm wondering, when did you realize that the entirety of your life wasn't? Mm. Hmm. I think I'm still realizing, you know, I think I'm still realizing that that period anyway, was it? I was just back in Pittsburgh for, um, I, uh, work with West Virginia university with, um, some reporting stuff that they do out there. And, and, um, I was down to, to do some consulting and, and reporting and I always pass through Pittsburgh and I always avoid my hometown because my mom died and there's no one I know there. And I, I actually went back very pointedly to, to do some of that work of like really trying to reconcile that like there were positive things that happened there were many many positive things that happened to me as a child that that were separate from this and that were life enriching <laughs> you know but sometimes when you for me anyway part of the the hard part of trauma is how for me it's like i just i've erased so much and i have to keep digging it back up and that's really painful obviously but the value of it is exactly what you're describing because then you can i can remember the good stuff and um so i think you know writing man alive was one way I had a sense that if once I transitioned, I, I, I had a sense I would feel farther away from myself as a young person and just in general from this period, from this whole time, you know, because I would be moving through the world differently. And I didn't want to, I wanted to stay tethered in some way to my past and to myself and to look at it more closely. So I think that book so much, in so many ways tries to tries to bring a lot of different disparate pieces of, you know, good and bad of, of my life into alignment. When you were 14, the first girl you ever loved was straight. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you can read a bit about how you described it from your book, Man Alive. Sure. This was a narrative I could get behind. We were 14 and Mooney, Springsteen-esque. When she first said it, maybe she meant I wasn't too gangly or smelly. Or maybe she meant that I was a romantic, 
that I'd wooed her with a bravery that emerged blessedly and out of nowhere with puberty. Who was this person that, holding up a makeshift canopy of plastic bags, kissed the popular pretty girl near the bus stop with cocksure abandon? Only later, as we got to high school and the boys grew broader, did it occur to me that not being a dude might be a liability. Is it weird being with me, I asked her. Every memory I have of those years is tainted, a hormonal, sun-bleached gauziness. Picture a dewy summer day, and we're lying on our backs in the park near school. She's the rare adolescent whose good looks never soured into awkwardness, just straight swan from day one. She got up on her elbows to look at me, and I couldn't believe how dumb I was for asking the question. She paused long enough for my heart to palpitate. She'd had a couple of boyfriends at her old school, and I pictured them as popular, handsome, and decidedly boobless. No matter how you cut it, I was an outlier, and all the swagger in the world wouldn't change that. No, she said, tying up her ponytail like she never considered it. You're like any other guy. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're a beautiful writer. Oh, thank you. Meanwhile, I understand you found an entire new universe outside your small town at that time, thanks to the internet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what did you discover there as a teenager? Yeah, I mean, these were the good old days of AIM. (laughs) In retrospect, it's like wild that anybody could just contact you and you could just contact anybody and you could just chat. And I met other queer people. Uh, I met other queer people in New York. I literally came out here. I dated someone in New York, you know, as a teenager, and I came out and visited her and made friends with all of her friends and still am in touch with some of those people from when I was, like, 16 years old. And I, like, I learned how to have sex online. Like, I had to look up how to have sex. I didn't know how. Like, you know, (laughs) like, I mean, there was a lot of, like, research, you know, and and it was the early days, so it was, like, things were all message boards. and. You also learned the villanelle poetic form in high school and have described it as trans transformative. And I wanted to know, how was it transformative to you? I mean, I still love that, like, creative boundaries, you know? I I loved the idea of being forced into a form, you know, the synergy of, like, this is how it has to be done, and then there's you and the spirit of you, and how can you, like, work within that to to shine through it? I mean, that's sort of everything I've ever done creatively. I've responded best when there's, whether it's, you know, a deadline, obviously, but even just, like, I've been writing for TV and it's like I love writing scripts because there's so many limitations. But that's I think that's where anything interesting happens, you know. And um, I had a real tough English teacher. Uh, she was really tough but great. Like How was good, she tough? What did she do? She's a hard grader. She was one of those like high expectations but like, you know, took us really seriously. Yeah, I had Mrs. Tobin. She was mm-hmm. the same way. Yeah. She just like made us better, you know. We knew it. Yeah. And uh, – and she was the one who made us write villanelles in high school. I mean, that's a really tall order for high school students. And and it, I just remember it feeling like one of those things that I was like, there's no way I can do this. And then when I did it, yeah, it really changed the way I thought about creativity. What did you think you wanted to do professionally at that point in your life? Be a writer. <laughs> so that was always, that was it. It was well, always. Well, that and I, um, I... When I went to junior high, I did a, an assessment and I was able to skip like half a grade in the humanities. And so um, my mom successfully argued that I should go to film school because I had an interest in film. And uh, there was a Carnegie Mellon had like a, an independent film school affiliated with it. So I went to Carnegie Mellon's film school while I was in high school and was able to graduate. So I, I knew I wanted to do something either in film or writing. You went to Emerson College in Boston, where you worked in Boston's favorite lesbian coffee shop. Yes. Were you part of Emerson's writing, literature, and publishing program? Mm-hmm. At that point, where did you think you wanted to settle down? Where where did you think you wanted to live? You never really stayed in Boston. No. And, yeah, it's funny. Like, I loved New York, but I was very scared of living here, you know? How come? I, I didn't want to ruin it for myself. Oh, interesting. (laughs) And, you know, my first few years here were so hard that I actually think I was wise to wait until I was really mentally able to move here. I I don't think people understand that moving here is as bad as the movies and television shows (laughs) make it seem. It's really true. It's like I had a rough couple of years. Like, every bad thing that could happen, happened. I'm a native New Yorker, and I moved to Manhattan in 1983, and those first years were brutal. And I was born in Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I always assume it's different for native New Yorkers. No, no. It was hard. It's just a hard place, and it's really... It's its own um, language almost. Like, you really have to adapt to it. And I know that's true. I've lived in a lot of cities, but it's and it's true of every city, but 
it's different here. And so I think, um, yeah, I didn't. I, I knew I wanted to live in New York, and I I also just wasn't ready when I graduated from Boston, you know, college in Boston. So I went back to Pittsburgh for a couple of years, and then I went out to San Francisco. So you know, I definitely took my time getting here, but I did feel like I wanted to be here. You moved to San Francisco. I believe you were living in Oakland. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And that was in your early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was at that time you decided to have chest reconstruction surgery. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to do that then? San Francisco is a cool place to be, actually, and be queer and not quite know exactly, you know. Yeah. I was always a person who got who moved through the world in a way that was masculine and um, kind of androgynous, I would say. Like, people tended to kind of read me the way I wanted for the most part for most of my life. Um, but as I was getting older and the, and and men were changing and looked different and I, I just didn't look like a, a guy anymore in terms of my own peer group. Um, but I didn't know anyone else who'd had just top, top surgery at that point. And I um, had to go through kind of a, a bit of a thing to have to to get that, you know, signed off on. But it was, it was what I needed. And uh, so I, I did that first. And I thought or maybe even kind of hoped that that would be the end of it, you know, like because life would be easier that way. <laughs> um, but in a way, maybe it was also a way to like to have like a barometer almost like if this is all I need, I'll know. And if it's not, then I know something else really big needs to happen. And that's sort of how it ended up feeling. I, I read that after the surgery, you felt beyond genders, um, but still, even after, something gnawed at you and you've written that something was wrong. You thought you could find peace by lifting weights, jumping rope, mm-hmm. to keep trim and hide your hips, wear V-necks that showed off your flat chest. Mm-hmm. How long would it be before you really understood what it was that was gnawing at you? You know when you know something, but you, like, don't know it, but you do? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I remember that time, those those two years before I began um, hormones. I remember a lot of like watching a lot of YouTube videos, like a lot of conversations with my ex, my you know my partner at the time about, am I trans? Like it's not like I had no idea. It's just that I was like, I don't know how to know. You know, what's the test you could take, or how do you understand this about yourself? Totally. I completely understand. <laughs> yeah, completely. If only there were manuals. Exactly. So I think it 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 just also felt so adult. Like, I have to make this big decision that's going to alter the entire course of my life. And I don't even know if, how do I know it's right? Like, how do I know? So I think there was a lot of just having to sit with the not knowing and the um, the different options. And none of them felt correct. It just was like, at some point, there was a big enough dissonance or, you know, what people call dysphoria that it just felt like an overwhelming situation I had to change. And, and I think the top surgery really escalated that. And then also this incident that I, I imagine we're going to talk about, too, about you know, being mugged. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. When you were 29, you and your partner at the time got mugged. Uh, you were almost murdered. The fact that the mugger thought you were a girl mm-hmm. ultimately saved your life. Mm-hmm. Um, he was only shooting the male partners of couples that he was mugging. Mm-hmm. After you began having recurring dreams of a bearded version of yourself running shirtless. Mm-hmm. How did that make you feel? <laughs> well, it's sort of the central part of Man Alive because I think what was so shocking about that is that it was the it was the second real experience I've had with trauma. I mean, I had this abuse background, and then I knew there was something else going on, a compounding issue with my gender, and I didn't quite even have the language for that. So oddly, this terrible experience where I was held execution-style, literally, on a sidewalk for like 10 minutes... And uh, I didn't say anything um, the whole time. And my, my partner at the time was trying to get this guy's attention. And it was clear that he didn't care about her. He was really focused on me. And this went on and on and on. And eventually, I just said whatever she was saying, which was like, I don't have cash. And when I spoke, and my voice was not um, a male voice uh, or, you know, a, a voice you typically associate with men. He, he just said, you know, run. And then he let us go. You know, there's such a potent metaphor to that. <laughs> like, you know, it's like I spoke and it saved me to be this thing that I maybe in some ways had always struggled with being. And, I, and I'm and i a feminist, and I felt so bad about that. Like, I wanted to like, I wanted to like being female because I love women. And I, you know, I, I think being a woman is awesome, but I just wasn't one. And I think in this strange and profound way, this man seeing me for who I wasn't and that saving my life, it was almost like, okay, now I can close that door. Like that saved me. Great. That's why that had to happen. You know, that's why I had to be in this body. That's why all of this had to happen. And now that's resolved. 
and I, I ran. And then I had this somatic experience that literally later when I was doing research on trauma, like, you know, deer don't get traumatized when they escape a predator because they have these somatic ways of healing that are just innate to being a prey animal. Like they, they can run and they run off their adrenaline and they get to become part of the herd again. And, and that happened to me. Like I, I, we ran away. We found this like random woman who led us into her house and, and so on. And so like in this really strange way, I had this second experience of trauma that wasn't actually traumatizing. I mean, there were elements. I was scared to, you know, be at a certain place at night or whatever, but like it wasn't nearly as traumatic as it could have been. It just was very clear to me when that happened that this man saw me for who I wasn't. And I, I had been looking for the thing. Sign. <laughs> yeah. And it yeah. was like, that was the thing. So you wrote this in the New York Times about the experience. Our mugger showed me the universality of trauma and something tore loose inside of me like a tooth wiggled free from the gum. I was, in fact, completely normal. I behaved as anyone would, and just as trees moved toward sunlight, I had survived. Not only the mugging, but also the abuse of my childhood and discovered that the life I had was the one I deserved all along. Where did that epiphany come from? Did it just manifest through the experience? Yeah. I even remember that night, you know, after the, like, cops came and we gave the report and all that and, like, going back to, the you know, our apartment. And, you know, my partner at the time had such a different experience. She was just horrified and obviously and uh, totally understandably, like, and I remember her kind of almost being, like, thrown off by my reaction because I was just so, like, I felt so happy to be alive that's mostly how I felt. I felt so happy to be alive. And in that sort of euphoric feeling of like survival, I feel like I remembered how I had survived in this other way. I think that's the key difference. Yeah. Because she did seem very traumatized and almost annoyed <laughs> by, by the way that you were understanding what had happened yeah. and, and folding it into yourself. And I thought this was her first experience mm -hmm. and you had already come through one big one before. Yeah. And also she was bearing witness yes. and feeling so helpless, which I'm sure was such a different, it's like I was the focus of the attention, you know, and, and I don't know, it, I can't speak for what that was like for her, but I imagine I would have felt so differently watching someone I loved be in that situation versus I spoke, it changed everything, then we ran, you know, and then, and then it, was, it sort of became my story, you know. You've explored what makes a man in great depth in your work, and you've written that I wanted to be my own man, to comb my hair with Brill Cream, to tailor my jeans, grow a beard, wear a T-shirt. This is what a feminist looks like. <laughs> you also noted, if masculinity could be defined by a quick Google search or drive down a billboard-studded highway, then a real man is a paradox, captured crudely at the uneasy intersections of faith, love, public service announcements, politics, and advertising. Mm -hmm. Thomas, how can we reconcile that paradox? Mm -hmm. How is it possible to reconcile those binaries? Mm -hmm. Like being a real man versus being yourself? Yeah. I didn't know the answer when I wrote that. That was like my first book, and I, I really struggled actually for years to try to figure out that answer. I, I, thought, I thought that the answer would come because I would transition and live in the world, and it would just all become clear to me. And in fact, actually... A lot of people didn't know the answer to that question. That wasn't, like, specific to me, you know. And, in fact, um, that pressure of what sociologists call the man box, you know, the con constraints of having to be a real man and, and the policing of one another that we, you know, we ask boys to do culturally from a very young age and that which they can – there's, like, a, an exercise of, like, you know, going to um, elementary school classrooms that sociologists do where they ask sixth-grade boys, like, here's a man box, which they already know what that means, what goes inside it. And they can say all across North America, you know, here's what a man is. And they're exactly the things you think. A real man is stoic. A real man hides his feelings. A real man isn't gay, isn't feminine, isn't, you know, boys know this. And not because they are those things. It's because they are learning to stop being all the things that they're not supposed to be. So I think that the... The reconciliation happens when, first of all, we stop saying that anyone's real. You know, I mean, like we're all real. Obviously, there's no such thing as a real man. That's not a that's not an actual thing. But also, when we realize that we are creating those constrictions and and how harmful they are, men are more likely to kill themselves and each other, more likely to end up in in prison and to commit acts of violence and um, to be lonely. You know, all of these things 
because of the constrictions of this box. There's obviously a lot of privileges to being a man, and that's really important too. And, and we'll and, talk about that right. As okay, well. good. Yeah. Um, so because I don't want to make it sound like I, you know, that I only feel one way about this. But oh, I, that's coming. Okay, <laughs> but I think that the to me, like the biggest thing I've learned is that the. Ex- the expansion of what masculinity means to, to contain, just like within feminism, I think so much of the argument of feminism around being a woman was about like, there are so many ways to be a woman, not just the way that, you know, the male gaze perspective. Like, I, I think men need that too around masculinity. We need to like really, but within ourselves, <laughs> you yeah. know, open and broaden that definition. And honestly, every guy I've talked to, every academic I've spoken to, and certainly every man who's approached me about my second book, Amateur, has a story about boyhood that is tragic and traumatizing about, you know, the moment that they realized they were doing something wrong, you know, or some sad story about having to change literally the way they walked, for example, like so that their hips don't move. And I I I was talking to a guy who was 40 years old. He was like, I haven't even told my wife this, but I have been walking in a way that's not my normal gait for the last 20 years or whatever, 30 years because I got made fun of as a kid about swaying my hips. So I think it's like a collective thing we need to do, but I think it starts with ourselves for men. I think we need to really re-examine that notion of being real um, and accept that we just are real. <laughs> when you were 30, you decided to fully transition and you landed on the name Thomas, which meant twin. Um, Your mom's brother, who died very young, was also named Thomas. And you've stated that Thomas clicked into place and then I couldn't unhear it. Yeah. What is it like to find your name? It's so weird. It's like cool and strange. It was hard, actually. I was really torn between Thomas and Adam. Uh, but Adam felt too on the nose. Like <laughs> I was like, this is too symbolic. Uh, so, and Thomas, like, I remember like saying it a lot to myself, practicing it, like seeing if it fit. But it's weird. It's like weird at the beginning to like call yourself a different thing than what you're used to. I don't know. It's a real strange process. I mean, I remember like, you know, talking to my mom about it, getting her blessing, you know, all of that, which was interesting and kind of p- profound, I think, to have to like, or not have to, but I felt like I wanted to to have her agree that this wasn't a name that she would be comfortable with, not just because it was after her brother, but because it's like she named me and that matters. And, uh, and I think your name carries a lot of weight, actually. I, I really believe that. I think people become the names that we give them, you know? So I really... I thought a lot about it, and I, I think I've become a Thomas. That seems right. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> One thing that you've said was that you never felt that you were born in the wrong body. Mm-hmm. Can you discuss that and its importance to your work and for our listeners? Well, first of all, I think shame is the fundamental problem in our culture, pretty much always. I mean, the prison researcher James Gilligan concluded after like years of studying prisoners that it's the source of all violence, shame is. So... I don't think there's a single positive thing that we get from shame. Guilt, yeah, but shame, the belief that you are bad or something is wrong with you fundamentally is, is I think, why kids get abused. And it's something I really have. I have a commitment to not, to not embodying because I think when you embody it, you pass it on. And I think that's, it's a virus. So this idea of being born in the wrong body to me just has such a tinge of shame to it. Like it's just, it feels like such a shameful self conception. And I I just couldn't ever believe that about myself. To me, it felt like saying, I shouldn't have been born. I should have been a different person, you know? And I don't ever feel like that that was my experience of myself, you know? And I think, again, the medicalizing the trans experience is its own conversation, but I'm lucky to live in a time where there's hormonal interventions that helps me with the aesthetics of my body and so on. But like trans people existed before there were hormones to to help us and support us in this process. And they were still trans, you know, and they were born. <laughs> so they weren't born in the wrong body. You know, I, I just think there's a lineage that is being erased when we say that. And I find it harmful. I'm wondering if you can read an excerpt from Man Alive about the experience of your first shot of testosterone. Sure. I didn't expect the electric quality of testosterone or the near-constant tingle of irritation, the mysterious leg cramps, the quick bloom of my beard, the surge of muscle that rippled through my arms with each new set of pull-ups. I didn't expect the needles, which were menacingly long, a couple of inches, or the oily amber of the hormone, or the way my life would grow increasingly institutionalized by the blood work and biohazard sharp bins. I didn't expect the visceral pleasure either, the joy I found laying a hand on my rising pecs or lifting my shirt to study the hard center of my abs. I didn't expect the shift in my center of gravity or the calf muscles so big they brushed against my pants. I didn't expect the calm at the core of me, my strength a tactile feeling, 
as cool and placid as a lake. What kind of man was I? I didn't expect how hard it would be to tell, how sweaty and tender the process would be. How often I answered, I'm doing great, and smiled wide because I didn't know how to explain the more complex reality. The way I'd catch myself, squaring, in the reflection of my kitchen window at night, around midnight, when the moon was just so. After a lifetime of blurring your eyes in order to look at your reflection, what was it like to find yourself looking back at yourself? Normal. (laughs) I think maybe I just was like, oh, I guess this is like the psychic weight of not having this experience. It was more that everything that was hard stopped being so hard. Mm -hmm. More than it it was that things got super easy or that everything was a joy all the time. I mean, there were the joys, like for real, all those things were joyful. And there were, of course, moments where I felt and still feel like I catch myself in the mirror and I'm just like, that's awesome. (laughs) You know, that's so awesome. That's me. Like, that's such a cool feeling. I never realized that people looked in the mirror and felt this way. That was profound. That I, that that things were so hard and they didn't have to be. Testosterone ignited a lot of changes that went beyond the physical, and you wrote the following again in the New York Times. A few months after I began injecting testosterone, I discovered that one of the startling new privileges of my male body was that I could silence an entire room just by opening my mouth. Tell us what you mean by that and how that manifested. Yeah, so when I was... 30 and I began my transition, I was working in Boston and it was 2011 and uh, I worked in a, a newspaper and I I had only been on tea for like a few months when this happened and I it was like kind of the first thing that happened was my voice got low, which was a great first thing to happen because, you know, I think it, you know, especially after the mugging, like it was kind of like, you know, it was a nice synchronicity. But otherwise, you know, I was me just a few months into this experience and everything is hard at the beginning. It's like homeostasis is like happening and, you know, it's just challenging. It's like, I was really good friends with a pregnant woman actually. And we were really connecting about just all kinds of things about our experience. But one being just like hormonally, it was hard and challenging. And, and also I was being a thing, but I wasn't sure how to be it yet. You know, I was, I didn't understand really how to, to be the man that I was becoming yet. And so I was really kind of in a very shy place and, and not super um, talkative or, you know, outgoing. I kind of kept to myself a lot as in the beginning. And and I used to go to Fenway, like near where my job was to go get my shot. And that was one of those days where that happened. I came back to, to work and there was like a big editorial meeting. And uh, everybody was just sort of talking at once. It was very cacophonous, very like Boston, rowdy kind of environment. And um, and somebody threw out a question. I don't remember even what it was. And I I kind of under my breath almost, I was sort of muttering. I just responded and everybody turned and looked at me. It was just like, it It was like I, I had wolf whistled or something. It was wild. Like Suddenly I, you commanded gravitas. Yeah. Here's a quote um, about another experience. Uh, You write, I could hold an entire meeting hostage as I work through a half-formed idea, watching as heads swiveled towards me in silent animal unison, waiting patiently for me to finish even as I stumbled through a thought. Mm -hmm. In the past, I might not have had the confidence to even volunteer a thought without rehearsing it first. Now, more than once, I would catch myself mid-ramble and wonder... Am I mansplaining? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So where where did that how did that happen? Like how did you even find that you could be a mansplainer? Well, cuz I had a feminist approach to dealing with work. I mean, I was used to being ignored before I transitioned not just because I, you know, presented as female, but because I presented as an illegible androgynous gender. I mean, I was literally told by a boss once not that I shouldn't come to a business meeting because it would like throw off the other person, which I think was illegal. But um, (laughs) (laughs) so like, that's what I was used to. I was used to having to kind of fight for my place at the table all the time. And I also, my mom raised me that way. Me and my sister, it was like, just be assertive. Don't be afraid. Tell people your opinions. Like I had that from a place where that I needed it. So as soon as I realized that I wasn't doing that anymore, you know, obviously at first I was like drunk with power and I was like, (laughs) everyone's listening to me. And, you know, and I didn't totally realize what was going on. But then as it, as it became clear, my ideas have gotten better since I took tea. (laughs) Or more, I think I was just like, oh, I'm in my thirties. I'm just like professionally, you know, I mean, I knew, but I, part of me. Because I'm a man. (laughs) (laughs) But a part of me thought maybe I just caught my stride. And and I'm sure there's truth to that, too. I also had switched careers. I mean, there was other things going on. and, and But I did know um, almost immediately that this was not, not my experience from before. And it just took some time. I had to unlearn all of this. I had to unlearn. I mean, even 
you know, uh, there's a whole part of my book about like uh, bias and realizing I'm sexist, which was like super hard to learn. Talk about that. Talk about that. Well, you know, so the beginning I was like, I really don't want to be sexist. So what are all the ways I can be mindful? And I, I was trying all the time to be mindful, like to be mindful of women's safety, like to be thoughtful about, you know, if I'm alone on the street and it's me and a woman and we're both on the same side, like I'll just cross to the other side. I don't want to like stress her out, you know, like stuff like that. You know, my wife at some point, I think was the first person who was like talking about being interrupted at work or something. I think she brought it up. She brought it up about herself. And then I started tracking like, how often do I respond to women? How often do I interrupt women? And I had like this whole week of like just tracking my own behavior. Like, and it was like, yeah, I do. I interrupted women at a rate of three to one. I responded less quickly to their emails. Like, I mean, there were all these things I was doing unconsciously. And then when I did more reporting on it, it's like literally that is, that's an implicit bias. It's culture wide. So it's terrible and awful. But I think what was really compelling for me about that process of like owning that was to be like, oh, now I can change it. There's I can do about this back to expanding the man box and and masculinity and so on so much of masculinity seems like a monolith so much of like the way men are socialized in this culture we we treat it as if it's like that's just the way it is there's something innate or something about it and and first of all we can talk about that more later it's not nothing is really innate in that way but but certainly not interrupting and i think for me seeing my own contribution to that and owning it was such a big first step on changing it you know i had a i did a little social experiment a couple of weeks ago with walking. Mm-hmm. So especially if you're walking in an airport mm-hmm. or in a crowded city. I found that when I was walking in the opposite direction of a person that was walking toward me, if we were p- coming towards each other, women always moved out of the way. Mm-hmm. Men didn't. Mm-hmm. So if I kept walking, I'd bump into the man. Yep. Like, even if they saw me actually approaching, yep. they would not get out of the way. They would just wait till I bumped into them mm-hmm. and then say something nasty. Mm-hmm. Um, but women always allowed a pass. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to think about what that means. Well, I think it means, you know, one of my big questions I had for my book, Amateur, was like, does testosterone make us violent, right? Like, what does testosterone actually do? People say things like that about that sort of behavior. Somebody might say, well, men are more aggressive, right? They just are. And there's sort of an implicit, like, kind of subtext there that, like, it's about biology somehow. So I asked Robert Sapolsky, the neurobiologist out of Stanford, like, well, is that true? Does testosterone make you more aggressive? Like, I'm kind of scared to know the answer, but I want to know if that's true. And he said, no, Thomas, that's a, the biggest myth about testosterone. There's no aggression receptor in your brain. That's not a thing. It does make you status-seeking, though. And they've run economic games where the whole point of the game, the way you win the game, is by cooperating. And in those games, the men with the highest testosterone levels are the most cooperative, like reliably. So they win the game. But in those same games, if they give men a placebo shot and they tell them it's testosterone, those guys act like assholes in the same exact game. They're not even given testosterone. They just believe they have it. So, like, our myths about the sort of innateness of aggression as somehow connected to, you know, to masculinity and to testosterone specifically is is so powerful. And I think so many of these sort of, like, those chicken games, <laughs> they're about status. They're about who gets to own the sidewalk, you know? And if we rewarded tend and befriend instead of, you know, intent, instead of aggressive behavior and if the most, the highest status was for the most cooperative person, literally they've shown that that's what men would do. Yeah, there's a quote from in your book about uh, what Sapolsky had said to you. If a world is riddled with male violence, the core problem isn't that testosterone can often increase levels of aggression. The problem is the frequency with which we reward aggression. Exactly. Let's talk about your second book, Amateur, A True Story About What Makes a Man, came out last year. You stated that it is about what came after that initial heady rush of finally becoming yourself was finished and how you faced the reality of a world that was suddenly foreign. Mm-hmm. So when did the initial high end? Yeah, like immediately, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like this. Ah, the body metabolizes. <laughs> right. I mean, it's not that the high ended. It's that the experience of feeling good in my body never ends. I mean, it's a it's a joy to be in my body, uh, you know, and it's also normal, like we just talked about. But I realized very quickly that the expectations of my body were not in alignment with my integrity. You've said that everybody has a trans person inside of them. We have a million <laughs> twins. We go through these life experiences and we're shaped by them and we evolve. Tell me more about what you mean by that. Well, I mean, not that it takes testosterone to make you trans, but no, if you personally not. were to inject testosterone right now, 
there is a whole you that would emerge from within you. I mean, you. It's terrifying. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't need to be any more aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, or, you know, or vice versa. Like, if anybody who's a cis man went on estrogen, they would find this part of themselves that, that literally genes turn on, like, that are dormant. They become activated. Like, you personally would find out if you had male pattern baldness, for example. Like, there are... I have female pattern baldness, <laughs> so I would. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like there's a way that I, I, I don't think that that... You know, it's so simple, obviously, but I think there's something so interesting to me about the dormant genes that exist mm. within us, yes. you know, and that we find out. And, and we all know that, like, if you go live abroad or whatever, like, and you, you're in a different culture, you find that you are a different person in that culture because you've, we're shaped by our environment in these dramatic ways, too. So I don't know. I, I, I find that I find that so compelling. <laughs> yes. After you transitioned, men appeared wanting to fight you. Mm. Why do you think that that was happening? And did it take you by surprise? Yeah, I'll give you a little bit of context for that because nobody I know has had this situation happen to them. So I, I don't want to give a like false understanding. But, uh, you know, my mom died in, in 2014 and it was really sudden and awful. It was also like a few years into my transition and I just moved to New York and moving to New York was nightmarish. And I also was really at a point where I was feeling really frustrated like about how do I even live in this body because everything about my my range of emotion was feeling more and more limited. Not because I was on testosterone, not because of something with the hormone, but because I felt like when I was expressing beyond this very limited range, I was met with a negative reaction. So I was I was walking around really angry because I felt rage from being in grief, which is a normal part of grief, but I also felt like it was the only appropriate expression of grief that I, I, I could have. So that was my vibe. And it was 2015, and sort of historic, like historically in retrospect, I think a lot of men were really angry. So I think that was the clash of what was happening. Yeah, I, hence the 2016 election. Exactly. But nobody was talking about it, and that was part of the problem too. Nobody was talking about it. People were like, I had been covering the masculinity crisis, as it were, for years as a reporter at that point, and it was like people were kind of like, it was an economic thing. It was about the recession, and nobody was talking about how being a man itself, I felt, was a kind of crisis all the time. In my own experience, just walking around, I felt like I was always in crisis. Like Because of the economic crash, like there was a lot of conversation about men and work and so on, but it, it we, people weren't talking about like the broader emotional stuff, I think, in, in a big way. So anyway, I was walking around angry and there was this one summer in 2015 where like every single month a guy tried to street fight me, which is weird. It was over dumb stuff, like going, you know, a bicyclist who almost ran me down going the wrong way on a one-way street and then was mad at me about it, like that kind of thing. But I was also just like, I think probably willing to to engage with people like that, like because I was mad, you know? And the last time it happened... Uh, it was outside my house and we were having this dumb argument with this guy who the pretext was like, it didn't even make any sense. Like he thought I was taking a picture of his car. I really just felt like it, it came very close to being like an all out fist fight, which is so stupid. And I realized then like, you know, every, I am just at a low, this is terrible. Everything is bad. Like I've got to do something different. And, um, a question came into my mind, which is just like, why do men fight? Anyway, I pitched a story about, um, about that question, why do men fight, to my bosses at Quartz. And then they, you know, were like, yeah, sure, go write a story about boxing. And that's how I came to learn to fight. So in 2015, you fought Eric Cohen, a private equity firm partner, at Madison Square Garden as part of a charity organization that puts together boxing matches. And as you described it in 2016, here we are, two dudes with almost zero ring experience, exchanging blows at a white-collar charity match in front of 1,700 drunk finance types in that hallowed hall of American boxing, Madison Square Garden. Thomas, you were the first known transgender man to ever fight in Madison Square Garden. What was it like? <laughs> Yeah. I didn't even, I mean, I was coming at it from such a dark place, you know, in the beginning. Like, it, it took me a long time to even realize that that was going to be part of it, that that there was some historical element, you know, and I'm not a real boxer. I mean, I'm just a, I'm just a guy. But, and I also had, like, really not enough experience. Like, five months is not, not long enough time to train 
to fight. Like it's every, not enough time to train for anything. No, it was so <laughs> it, it was a wild idea in retrospect. I didn't have time to think about anything. I didn't even have time to report. I mean, I took just copious notes about what was happening, and then I wrote. I like boiled down all my big questions, and then I reported all of them out later around like masculinity and whatnot. But I didn't have time. I mean, I was working a sixty-hour-a-week media job, and then coming afterwards to the oh, I didn't gym. realize that yeah. this was concurrent. Oh yeah. Yeah, I still had to work. And then I had to go to this like other job I had, which was training to box and this with these incredibly high stakes. I just remember like coming into Madison Square Garden, like when I was going to fight was the first time I really, I think, totally understood what was happening. And then I was really excited. <laughs> Leading up to the fight, somebody asked you why you were doing it. And you wrote, I usually mumble something about an anthropological study of masculinity. But the truth is a mosaic of horrors, snapshots of unresolved rage and loneliness that boxing, I hope, could deliver me from. Did it? Yeah. You know, I've been thinking a lot about fighting ever since because I'm, like, not a particularly violent person at all. Like, I actually am, like, uh, literally I go to, like, Quaker meetings. <laughs> like, it's, like, part of my nature to not be violent. But I I mean, I was always a fight fan, and I, I understood what boxing was, obviously. But I didn't understand it in a physical way. I think boxing re-delivered me to my body. Like, I got to have, like, a really deep experience of my own body and its strength. And I think for anyone who's not socialized to to fight especially for people who've been through trauma, which is a fighting is a natural response to threat, you know? And I think it's really interesting that half of, about half of people in our culture are taught to fight and told that fighting is the right thing to do. And then half of people in our culture are told not to, you know, and, and taught literally to do the opposite, to freeze, to give up, uh, maybe to run, you know? I mean, truly on a trauma level, not knowing how to fight is, is, is terrifying. It's a scary thing that that's part of how we socialize each other. And fighting is a normal response to something that's threatening you. So I've thought a lot about that since, actually, from that perspective, like the value of of knowing that you have it in you. And I think so much about boxing specifically, it's a, it is an art. It is an incredibly challenging sport, you know, and it's, in, it's really exposing. It's a very vulnerable sport. And so, so much of my experience with that was so different than what I was expecting it to be. I mean, it's obviously brutal. It's something, there's something very sad about the fact that, you know, as the sociologist I spoke to later explained, the cover of violence allowed for me to have such intimacy with the men around me that maybe I would never have had, you know, otherwise. But the truth was I did have it for whatever that reason was, and that was profound. So, yeah, I think boxing was a truly a salvation for me. Most of the people that you were training with had no idea you were trans, and you felt uncomfortable because of that. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, I, I mean, I made that decision. It was like a reporting decision. I, oh, I see. So did you feel like you were lying? I felt strange about it, but I also thought it was interesting to see what difference it made, if anything, you know? And I just, I didn't want being trans to be a mediating factor. This was a reporting experience. I wanted to to tell a story about what it's like to be, you know, a person who doesn't have any fighting experience, like going to a white-collar fight. Like, I really wanted to do that without, you know, a I... A white-collar fight. Yes. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. That's beautiful. But, but, you know, it's like, I mean, that was the thing. And it's like, in some ways, it was really cool, actually, to not have to... I don't know, always have to be thinking about that or communicating that. But in this other way, it was actually very clear to me, this is an important part of my identity uh, and something I'm happy to claim. And it was nice to come through the other side and get to, like, claim it again. <laughs> you know? Were you scared in the ring? No. Like, when I was fighting? Yeah. No. Uh-uh. No. I was scared watching it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't watch the whole the whole uh, match. <laughs> I watched the little film of it. Yeah, yeah. But it was, it was, it was really... Well, <laughs> you know, I was, <laughs> I mean, I was a goalie, so I think the getting hit was never the part that I'm either brave or foolhardy, foolhardy, maybe both. When that, when that piece of it, I think I was more, they do so many technical knockouts with these things because obviously these are people who are rich who could sue. I mean, that's my, that's my imagining of why, but like every fight before mine, so many of them, not everyone, but many of the fights before our fight ended really quickly because it was just like there was a knockout and I, I don't know if the person actually got knocked out or if there was a technical knockout I wasn't there but I just really didn't want that to happen I really wanted to go all the all the time I, we said we were going to go I wanted it to be a good show and I wanted it to be like I wanted to be able to walk away from it and feel pride about how I how I'd handled myself and I I just didn't want it to end quickly unless I ended it quickly you know and you didn't you you made it through yeah we made it through it you had a great first round I had an amazing first round and that was awesome and uh for five months of training I think I did pretty well I definitely 
would have made some other choices, like, you know, in retrospect, but like, I think it, I think it went as well as it possibly could have gone. And that was awesome. And any notion of going back into the ring? I've read that you're surprised by how often you still ponder excuses to return to training. I know. Still the case? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's like I text my coach, Danny, like probably every few months being like, I'm going to come down there and, you know, whatever. And then every once in a while it happens. But like, it's just hard to, it's hard to do something halfway or, or sort of when you've done it, pedal the metal. Like it's just, for me, I'm just a real... I'm really passionate about the things I do. It's really hard for me to be, like, dabbling. (laughs) Thomas, I have two last questions for you. One is really hard, and one is, I think, a really fun, easy one. Okay. Um, The first is the hard one. You've described the masculinity crisis as a spiritual, health, and environmental crisis. How do we even begin to try to combat this? Mm -hmm. I think it's really important, like, from this isn't my thought. This is like my experience in the process of like looking into all of this. Like, like I think I mentioned earlier, it's like every historian, every sociologist, every developmental psychologist I talked to led me back to boyhood. Like boys is where we started talking and where we got into like the most intervention points and like the most kind of like, even just like way to talk about this. Cause so often I think part of the problem is like men here, masculinity crisis or toxic masculinity it's like just shut down because another thing we tell men is that they either have to be good men or they're bad men right so like you're constantly defending how good you are right and then there's no place to reimagine anything because all you're doing is defending this this sort of role you have as good so i do away with that i would focus more on boyhood both as like a place of like where we can make some real difference and impact but also where men can like think back themselves on like where did I learn some of this behavior that I think of as as innate but that troubles me because also most men in my experience are troubled by the things that you know that we are all troubled by it's not like most people I know are like yeah this is super cool I'm really into sexism you know or like I'm really into to feeling like I can only express certain parts of how I feel because that's like what's expected of me. I don't think that's a common feeling. And people who have kids like often ask, you know, well, what can I do for my my boy? Like, I don't want him to to have the same experience or whatever. And I always say like, the best thing that you can do for your kid is have an engagement with gender for yourself, you know, and show them that gender is like a thing that we all have. And that there's, you know, my mom wasn't trans, (laughs) she wasn't queer, but she was a woman who came up against all kinds of obstacles and who also had, like, she was feminine. She was into feminine things. And her way of dealing with, like, being the only woman in a room all the time at work and then also, like, figuring out how she liked to get dressed up. Like, I witnessed all of that. I watched her negotiate her gender. And I understood that gender was complicated for her and that it was a thing you could you could have an engagement with. And and you could you could deviate from norms and you could embrace other norms and you could have your own relationship with, with gender. And I think that's what boys need too, you know? I think feminism gave us a language for that for girls and people who are on the femme spectrum. And I think boys, feminism also is giving us that language for boys, but we need to, like, keep applying it, you know, and men. So... So much of this is about nuance and slowing down and internal reflection as much as it's about policy and structural changes and naming, you know, there's such a desire, masculine desire, in my opinion, to like name, solve, resolve, what's the thing, what's the rational explanation, what's the binary, what's the good, what's the bad, and it's like, let's slow down and look at what's really going on, let's look at our own lives, and let's get rid of the idea of being good, because that is so not helpful. Naomi Wei said to me, the NYU psychologist, she said, you know, instead of asking yourself, am I a good man? Ask, what am I doing to maintain the status quo? And I think that's really profound. I think about it literally every day. Because if that's the problem, if the status quo is causing harm and you agree with that, there's opportunity there. (laughs) Like you can be an agent of change as a man. So my last question is, this is the beginning, from what I understand, of a, a new career in television writing yeah. for you. So you've been working on both Tales of the City and the rebooted L Word. What's that been like, and and where is this going to be taking you? Yeah, it's been really cool. I mean, I you know, it's like a, it's a new thing, but also it's kind of in a return to my experience as a younger person and being into film. And I've always been a film buff. Like I, I literally spend. I go to the movies every week by myself. That's like my one of my greatest joys. So it's just such a genuine pleasure to learn how to do something new. I love it. And I love television um, and film, but I love my work in television around um, collaboration because that's also like the biggest difference, you know, is being able to be 
it basically a simulated collective unconscious. You know, you're in a writer's room with five or six other people, and you're you're one big brain, and uh, you need to come up with like a story together that's like archetypical, basically. And there's something to me that's so beautiful about that. After so many years of being alone, trying to sort of write my own hero's journey, um, there's something so deep to me about like getting to collectively create that with other people. And I don't know, I guess like, we'll see if there's another season of The L Word, hopefully, fingers crossed. (laughs) Thomas, thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself and thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thanks for having me. Thomas's two books are titled Man Alive, A True Story of Violence, Forgiveness and Becoming a Man and Amateur, A True Story of What Makes a Man. You can find out more about Thomas on his website, thomashagemcbee.com. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.